0: Well, hello, and welcome to Citizens once again. Uh, My name is David, and I serve as a family life pastor here. So glad that we're able to worship uh, in this space together. Uh, It's been about a month uh, since our family joined this community, and um, I just want to thank you guys uh, for your warm welcome and hospitality. Uh, It's always hardest for the pastor's family to uh, get adjusted and acclimated, but you guys have made it really easy uh, for our kids to feel like this is a home. Um, And I also want to ask you guys to be patient with me. I'm meeting a lot of people every single week. uh, And I'm only recognizing people by their eyes uh, because of the mask still. So if I ask you to pull down your mask, uh, please don't think I'm being creepy. I just want to be able to associate uh, a name with a face. But uh, if I ask you a number of times, uh, please forgive me and please be gracious. Uh, A few weeks ago, we started a, a new series in the book of Ruth. And for this series, we have a a kind of a unique rhythm. Uh, So after completing one chapter uh, of of Ruth, what we're going to do the following week is look at a New Testament passage uh, that shares similar themes and ideas. Uh, And the reason why we're doing this kind of back and forth from the Old Testament to the New Testament is so that we can see the Bible uh, as one complete story. Uh, And not just kind of isolated stories with uh, different characters and different life lessons, which there are, uh, but predominantly the Bible is about the unfolding story of God's grace, his plan of redemption. And each book develops on that one idea that God came down in flesh to save uh, a broken people. So last week, our sister Elizabeth uh, preached on Ruth 1. Uh, If you missed it, I highly encourage you to go back and listen to it. Uh, One of the most powerful sermons that I've I've heard in a really long time. And so it's available, I think, on YouTube and I think Spotify as well. Uh, But please go back and listen to it. But what our sister Elizabeth did last week was focus in on Naomi and her journey with God through bitterness. And and how she closed uh, last week's message was uh, by mentioning Ruth and her faithfulness and her devotion to Naomi. And that's where we're going to focus most of our attention is on Ruth and her faith. You know, a common question that I ask, uh, being that I'm new here at Citizens, is how did you and Jane meet? And so I've shared this story a number of times, but the older I get, uh, I'm actually amazed at how everything kind of went down as I relive that story. And I think parenthood, adulthood, uh, just being a little bit more mature, knowing what it takes to survive, to raise a family in SoCal, I look back at the moment where Jesus, uh, not Jesus, Jane, said yes to me and I am amazed. I am shocked that she said yes to me. So to give a little bit of context My wife, Jane, was raised in Cerritos. Now, for those that are in SoCal, that explains a lot about who my wife is. Um, Jason is also from that area. But not only that, uh, she went to Whitney, which is another layer to who Jane is. Whitney is this uh, really, uh, all Asian parents want their uh, kids to go to Whitney, Uh, That's the school that you want your kids to go to. And so she went there. Uh, But when I met Jane, she just graduated from uh, Biola. She got her master's of education there. And she was starting off her career. uh, Actually making a pretty decent living for herself. Uh, Now, me, on the other hand, I was um, from Seattle. I came freshly from Seattle. uh, Grungy, uh, unkept seminary student. I just started seminary. And, and so that's kind of how we met. And uh, I obviously was head over heels for her. Um, but I was the opposite of everything that Jane was looking for. Uh, I was younger, uh, an aspiring pastor, and an aspiring pastor at the church she attended. Those were all the things that she was not looking for in her partner. Um, And we couldn't be any more different. Uh, I know Myers-Briggs is a little outdated, but I am an INFP. Uh, She is an ESTJ. Uh, We're so different in every possible way. Um, Like when I look back at the decisions that she uh, made to marry me, uh, it was fiscally reckless for her (laughs) to say yes to me, but she did anyways. And I asked her, what were you thinking back then when you said yes to me? hoping that you know she will offer me you know just kind of words of comfort and assurance. But she just replies, I, I wasn't thinking. <laughs> um, you know, when I look back at that moment, I-, I really attribute it to God and his grace over my life. Uh, and I'll come-, come back to that uh, at the end. But as shocking and unthinkable uh, it was for Jane's decision to marry me, uh, it pales in comparison to the decision that Ruth made uh, to cling to Naomi, uh, it actually makes no sense. So, do a uh, real quick recap of what's happened so far. Uh, Elimelech and Naomi had their uh, had two sons. They left the Promised Land because of God's judgment. There was a famine in the Promised Land, and they went into basically enemy territory to look for food. So they went to Moab. Not too long after that, Elimelech, Elimelech died tragically. Um, They had their two sons married Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth. They lived there for 10 years, and before they can even bear sons or any children, the two sons died as well. So now we have Naomi and her two daughter in laws. Uh, This was a tragic situation, devastating and hopeless. Uh, There weren't too many options for them. But we find out that both daughter-in-laws actually want to stay and stick with Naomi and um, her, their mother-in-law. And if you're married, uh, that would not be something you would entertain, to stay with your mother-in-law. But that speaks of Naomi's character and her love that she expressed to her daughter-in-laws. So Naomi pled not once, but twice, to both her daughter-in-laws, to say, "Hey, there's nothing good that can come from staying with me. Go back home. You're still young. You can marry again. You can have children. You can start again." And we find out that Orpah does the reasonable thing and she goes back home. But we see Ruth doing something crazy. She clings to Naomi. Now, this word in the Hebrew actually talks. It speaks of a husband and wife's union that's how strong this word is and this is where we hear one of the most powerful professions and confessions of faith and i want to read this for us in ruth 1 verses 15 through 18 and she said see your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods return after your sister-in-law Ruth sealed her fate with Naomi. But more than just Naomi, what we see is that she was clinging to God and his promises. She entrusted her future to God. Now, we're not told how, uh, but Ruth, who probably grew up worshiping Kamash, the Moabite God, now converted and worships Yahweh to be her God. We don't know how this happened. But this confession tells us that she believes in Yahweh. And again, we are struck with the subversive nature of the Bible, where kind of things are flipped upside down. Right? Who we would expect to be the protagonist of the story isn't. Right? See, there's a stark contrast between Elimelech's decision and Ruth's decision. Right, Elimelech being a God-fearer, a worshiper of, worshiper of God, fled the promised land to escape God's judgment in search of food in a forbidden land. He took matters into his own hands. Now we have a Moabite woman who had the prospect of comfort and security at home, but instead leaves home and willingly subjects herself to a life of destitution and suffering to follow God so opposite. And some commentators make this observation that Ruth's faith outshines that of Abraham's faith. Because for Ruth, there was no promise of land, no prospect of a husband or children, no blessing. She took a hold of all these promises indirectly through Naomi. Even though there was no earthly value and Naomi offered to Ruth, Ruth, Ruth clung to the promises and goodness of her God. And so what we find in this special relationship and this unique exchange is a preview to the call to discipleship that Jesus invites others during his ministry. And so the New Testament passage for us, and if you have your Bibles or your apps, you guys can turn there to Luke 9, 57 through 62, and I'll be reading from the ESV. but let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Amen. You know, early on in Jesus' ministry, there was a lot of hype around him. Uh, Wherever he went, there were a multitude of people, crowds gathering around to hear him teach or catch him performing a miracle. And so there were many who appeared to be his followers. But as we see in the gospel as it progresses, there is there's a distinction being made between those who are just following Jesus around to those who actually were following Jesus. You know, any influencer today would take advantage and and uh, and, and seize the opportunity to gain as many followers as possible. But what we hear what we see here is Jesus actually not interested in gaining numbers. But actually wanting a deep commitment and a deep devotion to those who would actually follow him. And so there's this heaviness and harshness to Jesus' expectation to those who would follow him. And we see three different candidates here. The first so-called disciple boldly declares that he would follow Jesus wherever he would go. But Jesus sharply reminds him, reminds this would-be follower that there that he has no place of residence. He was an itinerant minister. He depended on other people's hospitality in order to sleep. And so he's telling him, you think your life is going to get easier following after me. You are mistaken because I have no place to lay my head. The second potential follower, Jesus initiated with, and he would make what would be a seemingly reasonable request to Jesus, let me go first, bury my father. Right, this is an honorable thing to do, and uh, most of us, were from the you know, Eastern culture, we understand the responsibility that we have to our parents. However, there's a little bit more that we have to unpack from this request that this man is making. Right, this was a common saying, let me bury my father. Uh, this was said often in the ancient Near East, but actually even said now. And what he's saying is, let me take care of my aging parents. But there was no definitive timeline to this request. It could be a year. It could be two years. And so what he's saying, let me take care of my business at home first before following you. But there's something else that this man probably had in mind, his inheritance. He would have to forfeit his inheritance if he left his father's home. And Jesus responds, let the dead bury their own. Come and follow me. The last prospective disciple has a very simple request. Let me go back home and say my final goodbyes. And then Jesus replies with a very interesting saying, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Basically saying, if you're plowing, you don't look backwards and plow, you look forward You cannot plow looking backwards. And what he's saying is anyone who is constantly looking back, asking what if, is not fit to follow after me and live for his kingdom. Just as the Israelites were called to not look back at their slavery, not look back at Egypt, have your face forward to the promised land and keep going. Don't look back. Jesus is calling the same for those who would follow him. So now, when we see Ruth's decision, we see that she left her home with the prospect of not, another, with no prospect of another home. She left her family with no promise of another family, and she didn't look back. She left her home to an unknown and even hostile land, and we don't like to talk about these types of passages that Jesus. Uh, these types of teachings that Jesus has for us. It's, it makes us feel uneasy uh, because there is a cost to follow him. And that cost is a wholehearted, all in type of trust. He's saying you can't have one foot in and one foot out. And so, passages like this does not really hit us that hard. It's not that heavy because we live in a place where there's religious freedom. My guess is that uh, many of us, you know, every Sunday we wake up wondering, should I go to church today? Should I wake up my kids, get them ready, and come to church? Uh, see, that's not an option for millions of people around the world. Uh, I'm guessing that many of us, we didn't look over our shoulder when we drove into the parking lot today, wondering if someone's going to report me uh, from going, uh, for going to church. We're not worried that our parents will disown us. Or they'll cut us off because they found out that we got baptized. We're not worried about these things. We're so comfortable here in America. But sadly, this is the reality for so many of our brothers and sisters all around the world, especially in the Middle East and in Central Asia. When I had the opportunity to go uh, on a mission trip to Kyrgyzstan, I met women and and students uh, where their spouses left them because they found that they were Christian. Students who would have to hide their faith from their parents, knowing that they would disown them. You know, people hear this teaching of Jesus, and they have to seriously consider the cost of following him. And even after hearing what it will cost, many of them actually pay the cost and are still paying it today. See, in one sense, we are so fortunate living here. But in another sense we have different obstacles threatening our discipleship to jesus and i want to i want to say it's it's cultural christianity the prevalence of cultural christianity where our faith is defined by customs and religious rituals more than real conviction and character and many of us who grew up in as Asian Americans, we grew up going to church. We've kind of inherited religion from our parents. And because they went to church, we go to church. And when people ask you, oh, how is your Christian walk going? What are we associated with oftentimes? Our church attendance, right? Oh, I go to church. It's become a social norm, right, to go to church. And so over time, Christianity becomes more customary. And so because of the comforts that we have here, we, we try to configure ways to have one foot in and one foot out and even convince ourselves that that is a, a possible reality. And we also <laughs> oftentimes make distinctions between Christians and, and disciples when actually there was never uh, a distinction See, many of us were looking to follow Jesus on a discount or even a subsidized discipleship. And I think one of the greatest dangers to our faith is thinking that Jesus is okay with our tepid faith. And these words of Jesus is a sobering reminder that what he asks from us is a whole life devotion. And notice the things that Jesus is asking these Individuals to leave behind, they're not bad things. They're not evil things. The things that will compete for our affections are almost always going to be good things, like our careers, our children and their future, friendships and relationships, wealth and fame. Again, these aren't evil things. But when our joy and worth is entangled up in these things, these good things can pull us away from our Savior But you know, as hard as it was for these potential disciples here, the high cost of discipleship, I think the ones that struggled the most hearing this teaching was his 12 disciples who actually left everything to follow him. See, Jesus' disciples constantly struggled with their vision of the kingdom and Jesus' actual kingdom. There's a constant collision of these ideas, of their kingdom idea and the one that Jesus came to establish. See, like the masses, Jesus' disciples had this idea of a geopolitical king who will overthrow the Roman occupation at that time and to reestablish a theocracy. That's what they had in mind. And so we see Jesus' disciples constantly bickering and arguing, who's the greatest? Who's going to sit on the right hand and the left hand of Jesus in his new administration? And Jesus had to constantly bring them back to earth Saying crazy things like, the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Those that serve will be the greatest in my kingdom. And the disciples were rattled every time Jesus would say things like, I'm going to have to suffer. Because in their minds, they couldn't wrap wrap around their minds the idea of a suffering Messiah. That was not in their minds. They failed to realize that when Jesus came to establish a kingdom, it was predominantly a spiritual kingdom. He would give his life to restore sinners back to his father. That was his mission. And so whenever the disciples would hear these things about the cost of discipleship and suffering, they struggled with it. Because as disciples, their lives were Interwoven with Jesus, meaning that his fate will be their fate. His suffering will be their suffering. But what they failed to see, and they did not have the perspective to realize that Jesus' glory will also be their glory. And the scorn and suffering that they will experience is nothing compared to the surpassing glory that they will experience. And I'm not going to lie, as my first sermon here as citizens, this was a very difficult sermon to prepare. Following Jesus is not easy. It requires so much from us. And the question that Jesus is asking us to consider is what cost are we paying for our faith? For some, the cost may be Rearranging your children's activity so that you can engage consistently here at Citizens. Right, not to check a religious box, but knowing that we need each other to journey in faith together. For others, it may mean giving up a relationship that is pulling you further and further away from faith, a toxic relationship. Maybe for some others, it's to let down your pride, and to ask for forgiveness or to even extend forgiveness to someone that hurts you. And for some it may be to share that you're struggling with an addiction, that your marriage is struggling, even if it means the cost of your image that you're trying to uphold. See, if any of these things and these teachings of Jesus makes you feel a little bit anxious, it should. Because what Jesus is asking us to do is relinquish and surrender your little kingdom projects and to enter into his kingdom. That's hard. It's hard because we're all building a kingdom of our own making. The things that we think will satisfy and bring us peace and joy. And what Jesus is saying is surrender. I have something better for you. See, the only way that we can experience this joy and peace and freedom that Jesus offers is when we 're willing to surrender our kingdom. You know Jim Elliot was a missionary uh, to the Indians in Ecuador. He and him and his four friends, after, after dropping off gifts to the Indians, um, went to share the gospel with them. You know Jim Elliott was married for three years and he had a ten month old daughter at the time. One time they landed their plane to go and share the good news with these people, but men with spears came after them. Uh, they had guns with them, but they did not draw them. All five of them were speared to death. And years later, the one who killed Jim Elliott would come actually to know Jesus and love him. And this is what Jim Elliot says. This is one of my favorite quotes. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep, to gain what he cannot lose. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What he's saying is the cost to our discipleship is nothing, nothing. Everything here is temporary. What Jesus offers you and me is an everlasting treasure, inheritance that will not ever be snatched away. And one of the things I lament about so many of our past Christian experiences is that the main focus was on getting people to make this one decision for Christ. And so you go to a church retreat or you go to this rally, we hear a fire sermon, we get all hyped up, and the moment of truth comes where the pastor asks you, do you want to go to heaven and not hell? Of course, yes. <laughs> I want heaven. And so the, we, we, we say the sinner's prayer, and we accept Jesus into our lives, and that is the highest point of our spiritual experience. That's the climax. No wonder so many people got saved a number of times to live that moment and that, that spiritual high. But on top of that, we're taught that that one decision and the benefits of that one decision is a future reality, like a voucher that you're holding on to to cash in later. And because of that understanding of Christianity and that teaching and that one decision, we've truncated and conflated the Christian faith to be that one decision that we made. Failing to realize that the call of faith is not a one-time decision but about a life of increasing devotion to Christ. So yes, we do have an everlasting hope, but we also have joy that is offered in this life to us today. In your marriage, in your parenting, in your studies, your careers, in your relationship. The call to discipleship is a call to increasing joy Found in devotion to Jesus, but it calls us to surrender. What is getting in the way of you experiencing that joy today? What is Jesus asking you to leave behind or to relinquish? You know, before Jane and I got married, and even before engagement. Uh, we experienced a lot of struggle in our relationship. Uh, we fought about everything, and even at one point, we, we broke up. Uh, and to be honest, there were a lot of insecurities that I needed to work out on my end. But while we're broken up and we're still considering whether to get back together, Jesus, uh, Jane said something. I keep calling her Jesus because she is a Jesus figure for me in this illustration. Jane, Jane said something to me that I will never ever forget uh, she said David I, w- I want to be with you for you not because of who, what you do or, or where you go I just want to be with you and, and for me that was a gospel moment for me I literally had nothing to offer her uh, and actually she inherited my student debt and in a story for another time, I have a very dark past. I had even more debt from addiction that I struggled with that she knew about and still said, I want to journey with you. Citizens, I want us to listen very carefully because I, I think we can get this twisted. Our devotion to Jesus isn't to earn his love, but it's because of his love. He asks us to follow after him. He initiates with us. He comes to us and asks us to be a part of his family. Before we can prove our worth to Jesus, he comes to us. Before we can clean our act up, he comes to us while we're still in our filth and says, I want you. The call of discipleship is a call of grace. Even before we change, even before we form, he comes to us and he says, come and follow me. He left his throne in heaven to become one of us. He lived a life of devotion that we could not live and he died the death that we deserved. And he rose again from the dead, conquering sin so that by faith we can enter into his joy and into his kingdom. And so if you're sitting here today and you may be hearing Jesus calling to you, saying, hey, follow me. I have something better for you. I want you to consider responding to that call. You will find perfect love, acceptance, and approval that no one else can give you. An unwavering, unchanging faithfulness. A promise that he will never leave you nor forsake you. And so if you want to take that step of faith, come and talk to myself, Elizabeth, or any of the leaders, and we'll love to pray with you and and share with you what it means to follow after Jesus. Yes, the Christian life starts with a decision, but it never stops there. Faith is about growing deeper into the love of Christ. It's not that I have to, but that I get to know and love Jesus more. Because he first loved me. See, faith mysteriously bonds us to Jesus. It unites us to him. We are one with him. And this is a gift of grace, not of our doing. Nothing we do can earn this union. You know what that union does, though? It gets rid of the two obstacles that hinders every relationship. And that is fear and anxiety. Because we did nothing to earn this union with Jesus There's nothing that can disqualify us from this union. Security. There's nothing that we need to maintain this union. Because again, we did not perform for it. Jesus gave it to us as a free gift of grace. Free from fear. Free from anxiety. And so what this means is that yes, we can pursue a life of devotion to Jesus. And what this also means, you will fail in your devotion to Jesus. But there is grace. Grace runs deep. And so brothers and sisters, don't be satisfied with your kingdom project and what you think can satisfy you. Jesus offers you more. And it calls us to a life of surrender. So citizens, may we cling to Christ. May we journey together. We need one another. As Ruth, as Naomi needed Ruth, we also need one another to remind each other of this amazing kingdom that we get to be citizens of. So let's do this together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much um, for the call of grace that you have extended to all of us indiscriminately. None of us are worthy. None of us have any saving good within us for you to call us to be yours. Father, I ask that you would help us uh, to see you in a clearer way. To experience your glory in a transformative way. To know that, that you are the ultimate treasure. That nothing here on this earth and nothing in our small kingdom projects can ever deeply fulfill our lives. So help us to run after you, to learn more about your love through your word, through fellowship with one another, and even moments of failure. Help us not to run away, but to run to you, knowing that your love for us does not change. So God, I pray for my brothers and sisters here. Help us, Lord, to experience the deeper joys that you have for us. Give us the strength, Holy Spirit, give us the strength to surrender and to see and taste how good you are. We give you all the praise and glories. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.